Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dan Feldman. Dan is a registered dietitian and personal trainer with a master's degree in human nutrition. He's also a competitive powerlifter. Dan has a strong passion for making nutrition research more understandable and accessible for health practitioners. Towards this end, he regularly summarizes complex nutrition topics and research findings on his Instagram page. He also runs a successful insurance-based private practice, helping individuals improve their health via nutrition. In the episode, Dan discusses seed oils, artificial sweeteners, metabolism, protein, and more. If you're liking this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write a review and share it with a friend. Enjoy the episode. I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you for having me. I love your social media content. Listeners have heard me say this to many guests, and I try to get guests on here where I can send listeners over to you. So hopefully they'll come to your Instagram and follow you over there. Uh, Just... I mean, really high quality content. I'm always reposting your stuff, learning from your tips. And I'm excited to dive into a bunch of different topics today. Can you start off by telling us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to become a dietitian? Sure. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a registered dietitian. Um, I am also a competitive powerlifter per my Instagram handle, powerlifter dietitian, um, and a uh, personal trainer as well. Um, you know, I, I do own a private practice. That's kind of what I do full time. Um, and in terms of what led me to become a dietitian, it's kind of a long story, but, uh, to put it succinctly, originally, uh, when I was in my teenage years, I actually wanted to be a professional musician. I wanted to be a professional guitarist, uh, right around when I was getting ready to start college, I kind of realized that, you know, unless I wanted to be a music teacher or music producer, um, I would probably, that, that would be a difficult career path to, to, to make a living, you know, as a professional musician. So wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, went to the uh, University of Delaware for undergrad, undecided. Um, took a Nutrition 100 class, loved it. That kind of coincided with uh, a, a, a interest that I started having in, in, in weightlifting. Uh, um, I also, growing up, uh, had uh, struggled a bit with, with disordered eating. Um, and body image stuff. So all of that kind of culminated into an interest in fitness and nutrition. So met with my um, uh, met with my academic advisor, and she said that I could become a registered dietitian. I didn't know what that was, but it sounded very official. So yeah. <laughs> I studied dietetics, and 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 you know then ended up doing a master's, and then ended up 
becoming a dietitian. Uh, fast forward, it's you know, it's gone pretty well. How long have you had a private practice? Uh, so I officially formed my private practice in December of 2019, I believe. Um, uh, but you know, at first it was just kind of a few clients here and there. It hasn't, you know, I would say over the past probably two years, it's when it's really been like my full time gig. You know, before mm-hmm. that, it was much more uh, part time getting stuff set up, you know, that took a while. Did you work in hospital settings or different things prior to that? Yep. So I, when I got my RD in July of 2019, I worked in long-term care basically from then, from July of 2019. So working in long-term care, that's basically nursing homes um, uh, from July of 2019 till September of 2020. I was working in nursing homes, long-term care centers, primarily in Queens and Brooklyn. So during the start of the, the uh, you know, COVID pandemic, when that was really kind of the hot spot, you know, I was pretty much going in, you know, every day. So, so that was, was my uh, uh, full-time gig uh, for, for quite a while until September of 2020. Did some nutrition coaching for a company called Macros Inc. Um, you know, for a while until I had my footing with my own private practice and uh, around October of 2020 until... Uh, earlier this year, I, I had been uh, doing some writing and research for examine.com hmm. as well. Love examine.com. Yeah, yeah, they're great. <laughs> it's great. another great resource for people to go to who are listening. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Sure. I'd love to do a deep dive into just some of the common headlines that we see flying around social media. And you do a great job on your page, again, we'll send people to your Instagram of tackling a lot of these points and just separating fact from fiction. So I'd love to get through as many as possible, starting with this idea that there are good foods and there are bad foods. Is that a myth or is that the truth or is it somewhat the truth? Where do you fall on that? Well, so, I mean, I would say it's, and with a lot of stuff like this, it's like a myth, but there's a kernel of truth. So I don't love labeling foods as good or bad because unless you've got some kind of allergy or intolerance, um, pretty much any food can be included in a healthful diet. You know, what I, I've posted this on my page like a thousand times, um, but, but I uh, liken it more so to a food spectrum. You know, on one end of the spectrum, there's the foods you want to eat larger quantities of more often towards the other end of the spectrum, smaller quantities, less often. And even that, to some extent, depends on the individual, right? You know, for, for a typical American, you know, many Americans, you know, struggling with uh, uh, risk factors for heart disease, diabetes, uh, obesity, you know, generally on the, the larger quantities, more often you've got your fruits, your vegetables, your lean proteins, whole grains, um, you know, some fish, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the other end is going to be your, people call them junk foods. You know, I might kind of label them more like fun foods, you know, cookies, cakes, ice cream, pizza what have you, you still have them, but just smaller quantities less often. And, you know, obviously, you know, that, that you know, that does kind of have some individual variability. Um, you know, people who, you know, may have athletic goals and they're looking to put on weight, maybe there, there are other foods that they'll more so want to focus on, maybe, you know, focusing some more on nut butters and juices, what, what have you. Um, but, you know, put simply, Foods you want to have larger quantities of more often, smaller quantities less often, you know, other foods that you might think of as quote unquote junk foods. And that's pretty important because 
what tends to happen is is when people label foods as good or bad, um, they tend to eliminate the quote unquote bad foods entirely. Uh, we tend to want what we can't have, you know, so people will overly restrict themselves and then, you know, they'll have a, a minor slip up. Uh, they eat a cookie and it's like, well, it's the what the hell effect, right? I, I had one cookie, I might as well have 12 and an entire pizza, you know, a uh, little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, we, we generally speaking want to uh, encourage an attitude of moderation. Um, uh, just, just kind of for optimal health outcomes and just for long-term sustainability. Because, right, you know, I'm, I'm from uh, uh, New York, New Jersey area. I want to have a slice of pizza, every now, right? You know, when I go home to me, to, to, my, to my family in New York, I want to have a bagel. You know what I mean? So, so that's that's generally what I would say there. After living in New York for 12 years, you just mentioned two of my favorite foods. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I agree. New, pizza sure. and bagels sure. need to fit for sure. For sure. Yeah. When you say that, or when you post all foods can fit or there are no bad foods. Do people come at you ever of oh, you're just telling everybody to eat cereal every day or, uh, yeah. I mean, there, there are a few pe- generally, I mean, not so much with that one. I mean, there, okay. there might be a few people who say, Oh, you're saying I can just eat tons of Twinkies and just yeah. like are completely like, what are you talking about? So, but not really. I mean, I think it's a pretty, most people understand that concept. There are other topics that are a bit more like, uh, uh uh, that are a bit more controversial, which, you know, which, you know, seed oils and artificial sweeteners where, you know, people will, will, you know, go nuts. But, but, uh, with this one, people are, are a little bit like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive into the controversial one. So, seed oils that is spread often, seed oils are bad for your health. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? So, they are very, very controversial. You know, if you do Google seed oils, you'll see all kinds of claims that they cause cancer, autoimmune disease, Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety, obesity, heart disease, million other things. Um, largely speaking, these claims are based on mechanistic data, oftentimes, you know, data in, uh, you know, data in rodents uh, that are off, as well as data looking at the effects of uh, high intakes of omega-6 fatty acid, uh, linoleic acid, uh, increasing inflammation and then uh, uh, inflammation kind of causing all these other problems. So right, uh, briefly, right, there's different types of fats, you know, there's saturated fats that comes from animal fat, then there's plant sources of fats that are generally unsaturated uh, monounsaturated fats you've got in like nuts and olive oil, that kind of thing. Then you've got polyunsaturated fats. And within those, there's basically two categories, omega-6 and omega-3. Omega-3s are found largely in, in seafood, fish oil, to some extent in certain uh, nuts and whatnot. Uh, actually, canola oil has some omega-3s. And there, then there's the omega-6s, which are found in most other plant oils. And that's, you know, the seed oil crowd likes to kind of demonize those, um, you know, looking at you know, mechanistic data indicating that high intakes of omega-6 relative to omega-3 are, are bad for health, cause inflammation, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, I definitely think there is some, you know, at least mechanistic evidence to suggest that uh, very high intakes of omega-6 relative to omega-3 uh, is probably not the best thing in the world. And having kind of a closer ratio of that uh, probably makes more sense. But when it comes to seed oils, you know, 
it's more so the intake of just more oils in general. You know what I mean? Like for, for most people, I don't necessarily recommend that people go out and actively try and consume more oil unless, you know, I don't know, maybe someone's trying to gain weight or something like that. But for the most part, having less added oils to foods in general is a good thing. Just for most of us, most Americans, it's, uh, we're not trying to add more fat to the diet, right? But I mean, there, as far as like human research goes, I'm not aware of any evidence to, to suggest that um, seed oils of any kind are inherently detrimental uh, to health. You know, there's some uh, studies that actually there, there are uh, some studies. There's a, a meta-analysis from 2022 by uh, Reynolds and colleagues. They actually found that substituting saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, which includes you know, seed oils, which includes omega-6, is actually associated with better heart health and lower mortality rates. And that uh, is very much in line with what we know about, you know, dietary fats, that, that high intakes of saturated fat, not necessarily the omega-6, are what tend to be associated with, you know, adverse outcomes. So I do think that, uh, you know, potentially, again, I'm not telling people that you should go out and actively try and have seed oils. Like, you know, I, I don't think anyone should be trying to get more oil in their diet, um, you know, but actually substituting instead of saturated fat, having more of the plant oils seems to be associated with better health. Um, there was also another uh, study uh, that was published uh, in 2019, but it's actually another meta-analysis uh, by Mark Lund and colleagues. It's called Biomarkers of Dietary Omega-6 Fatty Acids in Incident cardiovascular disease and mortality. Um, and that one found that um, actually higher tissue levels of linoleic acid, so higher tissue levels of that omega-6 uh, was associated with lower heart disease risk. Um, you know, so, so you know, I don't think really the, the data in humans supports the idea that we inherently have to avoid seed oils. And, um, you know, and, and why I think that's important uh, you know, speaking as a practitioner, right, I, I, you know, have a private practice, I work with people one on one, you know, again, I'm not promoting seed oils, you know, but people in general have a pretty limited capacity with how much they can restrict themselves, with how much self discipline they can uh, really exert, you know, we only have so much that we can kind of focus on with our diets. And if we tell people, the more we tell people to restrict, the less sustainable it's going to be for him, for them and the less likely they're going to be to make long-term changes. And, you know, uh, worrying about seed oils is going to have a much, probably very little impact on your health, at least directly, um, you know, unless you're making more, uh, you know, changes that are more impactful, such as, you know, for people who are sedentary, getting more exercise, eating more fruits and vegetables, eating less, you know, that, particularly for people who have obesity, eating fewer added oils in general and eating uh, more foods that are lower in calorie density. Um, you know, limiting saturated fat intake, I think we've got a pretty decent amount of research to suggest that that's generally going to be beneficial for health. You know, increasing kind of with the fruits and vegetables, increasing fiber intake in general, you know, trying to kind of do what we can to manage sleep and stress. Um, doing, I mean, I mentioned exercise, but resistance training or weight-bearing exercise in particular it's these things that we probably all know because it's really obvious that have the most impact on our health. You know, I, 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 and 
you know, the more that people kind of focus on the, the, the kind of uh, the headlines of oh, seed oils or artificial sweeteners or this chemical or what have you, it, it distracts them from making changes that are really uh, more impactful, you know, mm-hmm. which is why I think it's, it's important. Um, so I know that was sort of a long-winded answer, um, but it is one of the, uh, probably along with artificial sweeteners, one of the, if not the most controversial topic Whenever I post about it, I, I literally I have people who comment like, like very uh, I don't know frightening, but people people just get really upset about it, um, you know, and they're like, why are you promoting this? But um, the science is what it is, you know. So so uh, so yeah. I want to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a company I've been impressed by for years. Thrive Market is an online shopping platform that offers thousands of products at 25 to 50% off retail prices. For just $60 a year, you get access to a wide variety of premium pantry staples, supplements, beauty products, and home goods at unbeatable prices. To put things in perspective, I save about $20 to $30 per shipment which means my annual membership fee pays for itself after just two orders. My favorite part about Thrive Market is that for every paid membership, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So not only do you save money on your purchases, but you also make healthy products accessible to everyone. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Yeah, yeah, it is. People get very fired up about that one for yeah. sure. Uh, and so then what I'm understanding is, let's say somebody is routinely cooking with butter. That's their fat of choice. So if they were to replace butter with some type of oil, like a plant oil, probably better. My next question would be, if you are routinely cooking with canola oil, would making the swap to olive oil, do you think, be even better just because we know all the research behind olive oil? Um, maybe. It's, it's, I mean, I, I think that kind of swap, it's probably not going to make a huge difference. I mean, canola oil actually has a pretty nice uh, fatty acid profile. It's actually pretty high in monounsaturated fats and omega-3s. Which is why I think it's silly when people lump it in with seed oils. But um, you know, if someone if they taste no different and someone wants to just use olive oil instead, maybe there is a slight benefit to that. Um, but you know, assuming and assuming with the butter and the, the oils that it's all the same amount of calories, you know, the, mm-hmm. the same amount of, of total fat. I mean, it's not going to make a huge difference. I do think the um, the switch from saturated, uh, particularly if someone I should say particularly if someone does have high LDL cholesterol. And, uh, you know, I think making the switch uh, away from saturated fat, probably a good idea. Whether, you know, olive oil versus canola oil, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, is there a difference? I don't know, maybe, but it's really kind of the minutia and I, and I don't think it would make much of a practical difference. And even look, if someone says, hey, I just really like butter, as long as they're managing the portion of it, it's, it's, you know, it's not like you can have no saturated fat, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, so. You know, so again, you know, I, 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 it's kind of keeping everything in its proper context. Right. And people, people like to debate the minutia. For sure. I think, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Spencer Nadolsky? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he talks a lot about the big rocks versus the pebbles. And I think yeah. it's a good way to think about it. Like you're talking, there's all these big rocks that we can address. But once there's a headline that's a pebble, everybody kind of latches onto that. And it's like, oh, here's the solution. Just focus on seed oils and then everything will be fine. Yeah, the big rocks are boring. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just in, in what I tell people a lot is, you know, the, the most important things with health are things we already know. Uh-huh. You know, of eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, high fiber intake, you know, managing your calorie intake to ensure that you're, uh, you're, you were, uh, uh, you know, if you have, you know, obesity, you know, aiming to, to reduce your body weight, you know, um, uh, you know, like I said, plenty of exercise, resistance training, um, managing sleep, you know, these kinds of things are, are, they sound so obvious and yet a lot of people don't do them. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, it's. So, so yeah, it is really about, um, you know, the, the things that we all kind of know on some level are important and really focusing on those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In line with seed oils, you mentioned artificial sweeteners. Yeah. There's the, you know, circulating right now, aspartame causes cancer or artificial sweeteners damage your gut microbiome. Where does research fall on that? Yeah. So, so one thing I'll mention, you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, you know, recently came out with their statement and, and specifically they uh, labeled aspartame as possibly carcinogenic to humans. It was a type 2B carcinogen, which, you know, something that a lot of people are are um, missing uh, is that that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it causes cancer. Uh, type 2B carcinogens, which is what the uh, um, the basically the International Agency for Research on Cancer, part of the WHO, uh, they say that basically means that there is some evidence that it could cause cancer in humans, but at present it is far from conclusive. Um, you know, there's there are some data in rodents that that large quantities of, of aspartame, you know, uh, may be associated with with uh, you know tumors or cancer. Um, but from my from what I can see, for the most part, the data in humans tends to see that there's no association. There was one uh, study a while back uh, by, uh, I think it was in France. Um, I don't remember offhand the, uh, uh, um, the exact study where they found a, they, I'll see if I can find it here in my notes, but they found, they did find an association. Um, yeah, here it is. Uh, so so a, a cohort study from let's see when this was yeah by by Debrat and colleagues published in 2022 artificial sweeteners and cancer risk results from the Nutrinet Sante population cohort study population based cohort study uh, you know that one found a uh, an association with increased cancer risk um, they they found that high intakes of artificial sweeteners were associated with a 15 percent increased risk in total cancer. Everyone kind of took that and ran with it, um, but you know it was an observational study. Uh, so, so observational studies can't necessarily establish causation. You know, um, you know, because people who do use artificial sweeteners uh, may have other characteristics. Maybe they're trying to lose weight. Maybe they've got other risk factors as well. And, and a lot of the artificial sweetener is, um, literature that can be, you know, an issue. Um, uh, but, you know, if you dig a little bit deeper into that study, and I, I did uh, talk about this back when I posted about it, which I think was, um, you know, last year, 
there the the uh, changes in risk were relatively low. Um, you know, there's the 15% increase in total uh, cancer risk, but the uh, uh, you know the relative risk you know which is really uh, uh, more important you know is still pretty low. So, for example, again, this is not directly from the paper, but say a group of people um, you know who drink. Um, or actually, I'll, I'll give you the example from the paper. It's right in front of me. For, for people who did not consume any aspartame or for arti any artificial sweeteners in general, um, their, their cancer risk was 3.10%. For the highest consumers of artificial sweeteners, so this is not just aspartame, it was 3.17%. So it's a 0.07% difference. You know, so it's, it's, when we say 15% uh, increase, it's 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 15% of that 3.1%. So mm. that can kind of confuse the headlines. And another thing about that study, uh, the non-consumers were at 3.1% risk. Um, low consumers were uh, at 3.92% risk and high consumers were at 317 So if it caused cancer, you probably wouldn't see, mm -hmm. you would think the high people in the higher intake uh, would, would uh, you know, have that increased risk. So, you know, there, there's some observational data which which may suggest a risk. But again, I, you know, I think in, in the bigger picture, if there's any risk, it would be very small. And, and I, I, you know, just from that study alone, I don't think there's really um, great data. Uh, there were also a couple of um, uh, reviews uh, or data analyses rather from the World Health Organization. One is uh, uh, published in 2022 uh, by Rios Leivraz uh, um, and Montez, 2022, called Health Effects of the Use of Non-Nutritive Sweeteners, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. They found artificial sweeteners, or aspartame, if you, uh, uh, excuse me, is not associated with cancer risk. Um, another uh, made analysis by Toes, T-O-E-W-S, in 2019, called Association Between Intake and Non-Sugar Sweeteners and Health Outcomes Systematic Review, also didn't find a risk with cancer. So, you know, I, I, I just, I don't think the data is there to suggest a risk, despite the headlines, um, you know, uh, if we just look at the data. Uh, now, you did ask about the gut microbiome as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... There's a few studies that show, like, I think the most recent one, um, you know, was published, I think, last year um, by Swez and colleagues, Personalized Microbiome-Driven Effects of Non-Nutritive Sweeteners on Human Glucose Tolerance. Basically, that one found that uh, people consuming um, uh, over a two-week period saccharin and, and sucralose had a greater blood glucose response after two weeks after drinking a glucose beverage, and there were changes in the gut microbiome composition. Now, the key there uh, is that, you know, we don't know as much about the microbiome as people like to lead on. Hmm. You know, I see people say it's going to damage your microbiome. What does that mean? You know what I mean? I mean, the the, the microbiome is composed of Many, 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 um, you know, species of bacteria, um, you know, with all kinds of different patterns. And, and what's, he what's a healthy microbiome, a gut microbiome may vary uh, from person to person or within a person or with one person in any given time range. There's a lot of variability both within and between people in the microbiome. 
So to suggest that that you know the, that the microbiome is somehow damaged, like what uh, that doesn't even mean anything. You know what I mean? It's so so, um, and we don't. There's a few studies that show alterations, but we don't know if those alterations are even clinically relevant. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So so. But just the research on the gut microbiome isn't even really there to say it would damage it, you know. And, and you know, the studies that, that um, I'm aware of, uh, you know, sh- show some changes, but they don't necessarily show, um, you know, a harmful uh, effect, you know. And, and again, when it comes to, like, how do you ensure your gut microbiome is healthy, <laughs> I mean, one of the biggest things is eating a lot of fruits and vegetables with a lot of fiber. Like yeah. that will go a long way. And how many of these people, you know, who are so up in arms about the gut microbiome and artificial sweeteners are doing that? You know what I mean? So I think living an overall healthy lifestyle uh, is, is, we all know what that looks like, is, is really the biggest thing for a gut microbiome. You know, do I recommend having tons and tons and tons of artificial sweeteners? No, of course not. But I, I just, it's again, it's it's a small pebble if we look at the, the, the um, you know, the research on it. Um, and again, we just don't know enough about the microbiome to really make kind of definitive conclusions. I guess bottom line, when there's shiny headlines, be curious about where people are. Yeah. Yes. And this is something I tell my clients and my family a lot because, uh, sometimes they'll text me, Oh, look at this headline. Um, news or social media or news websites, they want, they're competing for your attention. They're competing for your, they want you to click on their article so you'll read the article and see the advertisements. That's what they want. They're not necessarily interested in giving you an unbiased view of, of something. That's not, they just want your view, your, your views. They want your eyeballs. Mm-hmm. And making a, a media headline saying, eat more fruits and vegetables, research, researchers, researchers say, um, is not probably going to grab eyeballs you know it's it's something we all know already whereas saying you know demonizing something saying you know oh aspartame will kill you or, <laughs> or, or artificial sweeteners will destroy your gut microbiome or seed oils are going to give you alzheimer's like i you know what i mean like those kind of headlines they they get people's attention so that's you know that's why you have to be extremely careful where you get your health information um mm-hmm. You know, and again, I think Examine is a really, really great, uh, you know, resource for that. There's a couple of the research reviews I really like. Um, the mass research review, more so focused around fitness, uh, weightology, also kind of more so focused around uh, fitness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Sigma Nutrition Research Review, all good ones, all good ones. You know, the first one um, you said was mass. Yes, M A S S monthly applications and oh, strength okay. sports. Um, Examine also has kind of a research review as part of the membership. Um, there's so so mass and weightology are both mm-hmm. more so kind of fitness, muscle gain, fat loss, bodybuilding, lifting, that kind of thing. Uh, whereas Examine and then the Sigma S I G M A nutrition research review, those are more so focused on kind of general health. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. So cool. So, and I'll put links to those. And I think I know at least Examine. When you see some headline and it says like seed oil causes, causes Alzheimer's or whatever, if you go to examine and you type in some keywords, you can usually find some pretty sound articles that debunk yeah. whatever headline it is that you just saw. And so it's nice to have a place to go to, 
to kind of put your mind at ease when you are seeing a bunch of people post about these crazy things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in evidence-based sustainable weight loss. If you're ready to stop yo-yo dieting and start living a healthy, active lifestyle you're proud of, I'd love to work with you in one of my programs. Unlike restrictive, one-size-fits-all diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed nutrition and lifestyle habits that work for your unique likes, dislikes, and time constraints so you can lose weight permanently, have high energy throughout the day, feel completely in control of cravings, and stay consistent long-term. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Health Investment. There's another, I, I don't know if it's a myth, you'll tell us, but <laughs> idea circulating that your metabolism can break. And I know people will say this like, oh, my metabolism is broken. Is there any truth to that? No. Uh, <laughs> well, well so, so when people say their metabolism is, metabolism is broken, usually what they're saying is they're eating very little um, and they're not losing weight. Now, your so so metabolism is a little bit more complicated. But usually, when people say metabolism, they mean energy expenditure, the amount mm -hmm. of calories they're burning each day. Um, you know that if you if you uh, are on a diet, if you are on a low calorie diet, um, that will go down. Um, you know, I mean, if you lose weight, your metabol your your energy expenditure goes down, just because you know if you have less body, you know, then you will burn fewer calories. You know, a Toyota Corolla burns less gas than a Hummer, same thing. You know, if you lose 50 pounds, you will burn fewer calories because you have less mass to carry around. Um, in addition, uh, with, with uh, uh, pretty significant weight losses, sometimes we see, um, uh, you know, something that's sometimes referred to as metabolic adaptation, where basically uh, energy expenditure goes down more than what would expect based on, you know, the amount of weight that was lost, um, you know, and, and a lot of that, you know, especially if people are eating very low calories, uh, especially if people are trying to uh, lose just like the last few pounds, kind of like the vanity pounds, if you want to call them, uh, you know, our bodies do want to, our bodies don't want to get really, really, really lean, you know, because it's our bodies think we're starving to death. Um, you know, so there is some truth to the idea that you're, you're, your energy expenditure will go down and you may have to eat fewer calories than you would like uh, to lose weight past a certain point. Honestly, and this sounds a little bit harsh, but it tends to be the truth. When people are struggling with this, usually the biggest factor is that they're eating more calories than they realize. That's most of the time, um, you know, what what's kind of going on there. I mean, there's a pretty good amount of research indicating that people tend to underreport their calorie intake not even consciously, you know, um, you know, we forget about the, the bite of, of our kids food that we took, you know, or finishing our spouse's, you know, plate. I, I, um, you know, I, I have the, a talent of, you know, when, when my partner is, is can't finish whatever her plate is, I'm always able to take care of it. Right. <laughs> so, so we don't, we don't take into account those, those calories. Right. Or, so, you know, uh, to some extent, you know, energy expenditure, certainly goes down as we're, we're dieting, especially if someone has a long dieting history. Um, but a lot of that comes down to 
you know, eating more than you realize as, as much as people don't want to hear that. Um, you know, so, so one thing I do recommend to people is, well, they don't like to hear this. I recommend losing weight at a relatively slow pace. Um, generally, um, at the most, like 1% of their body weight per week at the most, you know, if not slower. Uh, and also ensuring that they're doing some weight bearing exercise if they can. It doesn't have to be lifting a million pounds. That could be, you know, uh, modified push-ups, body weight squats or whatever to maintain or to gain or at least maintain uh, muscle mass because lean body mass, you know, muscle mass, um, it, it, you know, it's going to go a long way towards helping to, to keep your energy expenditure relatively high, you know? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a long winded way of saying, you know, it's a, it's a myth and, and that's generally one of those things that are going on. How much protein do you typically recommend somebody aim for when they're in a weight loss phase? Um, so it depends. Um, it depends on if they're doing resistance training. Um, uh, you know, it depends on, you know, kind of what their goals are and what's sustainable for them. You know, I would say if someone is, if someone is already somewhat lean and they're just trying to get really lean, I think a, a good, uh, recommendation is 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilo or 0.7 to 1 gram per pound. Uh, however, if someone is significantly overweight, I generally wouldn't use that method because it'll overestimate protein recommendations. So in that case, I, I, I would say as like at a higher end uh, target, I might go with their, their height in centimeters. Uh, for a lower end, um, there's something called, and this is just something I use personally with kind of setting protein targets. Uh, there's something called the Hamwe equation, which in... Uh, clinical settings is, is used to calculate ideal body weight just off of height. I don't recommend it for, for kind of fitness folk to use it for calculating their ideal body weight. If so, it would, I would be like 40 pounds overweight, you know, and I'm, I'm not, you know, but, um, I do think that you can kind of use that number based on your height if you are overweight, uh, to kind of get a decent protein target. So that equation, the Hamwe equation for, for women, it's, uh, 100. Uh, for the for for first five feet of height, and then every and then five pounds for every or just five when the, you know five for every inch past five feet. You know for for men, it's 106 for the first five feet of height, and then an additional six uh, for each additional you know uh, 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 inch there. So, for example, I am uh, five foot four, so you know I'm 64 inches. That would mean uh, you know at the lower end that would be you know, first five feet, 106. And then for every inch, that would be an additional, you know, uh, six for those four inches. So that would bring me to 130. You know, if I wanted to go on the higher end, uh, my height in centimeters would be 162. So that's, you know, 130 to 160 decent ballpark, you know, yeah. so for, for, that's just what I do, you know, so for like for a woman who's maybe uh, uh, five, five, you know, that would be 65 inches. So that would be lower end 125. Uh, if I did that math correctly and the upper end, uh, would be height in centimeters. So 165, hmm. you know, 125 to 165. And, you know, I tell people it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a ballpark method. I, I you know, if people can't hit that target, it's not the end of the world, mm -hmm. uh, but it's something to shoot for. Um, right. It gets us in the right ballpark. And then if you tell a woman 125 is the low range, but then maybe she's been eating 40 grams of exactly. protein every day. So then that's a big increase 
And then she's seeing a headline that says too much protein is bad for your kidneys. Is there myth or truth to that? Oh, so the kidney one, that's, <laughs> that's mostly a myth. Um, I mean, there is sort of a kernel of truth. Uh, one, people who actually do have kidney issues speak to your nephrologist, you know, because uh, there are, I mean, it's debated, you know, but there is, are certain populations of people who already have underlying kidney issues who may have to follow a lower uh, protein diet. But for healthy people, um, there isn't really that much of an issue. Now, generally, the myth is that uh, high protein diets, quote unquote, overwork your kidneys and, and cause damage. Um, now, our bodies do break down dietary protein uh, you know, into amino acids, the building blocks of protein um, that are either used by our body or, or, or degraded by our body that are removed you know, by our body. And, and that process of degradation of, of, of breaking down you know, those amino acids ultimately for, for excretion, uh, that, that process uh, results in the formation of urea, uh, sorry, of ammonia. Uh, pneumonia is actually toxic. So the rea, their urea function, uh, it functions, the urea cycle rather functions in the liver to actually convert ammonia to urea. So we've got amino acids that need to be degraded. That process results in the formation of ammonia. Ammonia is toxic. So the urea cycle, the liver compo- uh, converts ammonia to urea. Now, the kidneys handle excretion of urea. Um, so when we eat a lot of protein, we produce more urea. And then uh, the rate at which the kidneys are are working, the rate at which they are filtering fluid, that's called the uh, glomerular filtration rate or GFR, that rate increases, um, you know, and, and uh, that increase in GFR allows the kidneys to eliminate more of those kind of protein waste products, um, you know, and... and one marker that, that you know, uh, medical professionals will look at when they're looking at, at kind of kidney diseases is GFR. So, so they might see that higher GFR and, you know, an alarm bell could go off. But again, that is not necessarily indicative of, of a, a health issue. And uh, while a few, while some people have claimed that a high protein intake um, in healthy people contributes to kidney disease, um, generally speaking, those claims are mostly based on animal data. People from uh, people receiving amino acids intravenously, uh, you know, data in healthy populations, at least over the short to moderate term, uh, has found that high protein diets don't lead to long term changes in, in GFR or kidney function, and even pretty high intakes. You know, Jose Antonio, um, who is the president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, has done some studies looking at like really high, really high protein intakes, like 1.5 grams per pound. Um, you know, and, and over, you know, as much as two years, they didn't find uh, really any adverse effects. Um, now, high protein intakes will increase blood urea, nitrogen, or BUN. Uh, that is a marker used to assess impaired kidney function. So oftentimes doctors will look at that. They'll see your BUN is high because you're eating a lot of protein. And they'll be like, oh, my God, your, your kidneys are, are, uh, are damaged or whatever. Yeah. But that's, that's not really the case. Um, so, you know. The evidence we have, you know, does not suggest that, you know, it will be that, that high protein intakes, you know, along kind of the lines that I mentioned in my recommendation a little while ago will really have any uh, sort of detrimental effect. Um, you know, but again, if you have kidney disease, I'd recommend uh, speaking with your doctor and nephrologist, um, you know, uh, about that. Right. 
Well, I'm so grateful with everything you shared with us today. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Um, I think that that means um, prioritizing, having health, your health be uh, one of, if not like the main priority in your life. You know, I think that for, for a lot of us, Life is ultimately about priorities, and we all have limited time, limited energy, uh, limited resources, and many people do focus more of that on, you know, maybe others, maybe it's their families, you know, like I've, I've worked with a lot of, you know, mothers who have focused so much on their families uh, and, and provided for them that they don't look after their own health, you know what I mean? Or, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, maybe people are going out excessively, and, and, and that's, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, preventing them from making, you know, changes in their habits. So it's, it's identifying that your health is a priority for you and taking some steps to improve your health. That doesn't need to be something super drastic. You know, that can mean, uh, you'd be adding in some walks, eating more fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways to improve your health, but it's doing, doing, taking steps to actively prioritize your own health. Um, I'd probably say. Mm. Yeah, love it. Where can listeners follow and find you? Yeah, so I uh, probably the best place is my Instagram um, at Powerlifter Dietitian. I'm pretty active there. Um, I also uh, recently started another Instagram account specifically for dietitians in the U.S. who um, want to start a private practice, uh, whether it be insurance based or or uh, private pay who want to start a private practice but don't know where to begin or who uh, have a private practice but they kind of want some free advice. Uh, so for dietitians specifically, if you're in private practice or are interested in being in private practice, you can find me at Dietitian Mentor on Instagram. For everyone else, at Powerlifter Dietitian. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Very grateful for all of the wisdom you shared with us today. And like I said earlier, your Instagram is incredible. That's where I initially found you. So I hope everyone comes your way. And I just want to thank you again so much for sharing everything you did with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.